The following audio is from the Grove Church Marysville campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. The year was 1988. Um, I was attending Marysville Junior High School, which is now Totem. And um, at the end of my eighth grade year, my counselor called me into the office. So um, I go into the office and sit down and, and she proceeds to tell me that going into ninth grade, you're required to be signed up for a math class. And she proceeds to ask me, which math class should I be in? This is my opportunity where I felt like my ship just came in. Because not not that I'm any genius, because I'm not, you're going to find out in a second, I'm clearly not. But I I had done, you know, worked my way up in math a little bit there in in middle school and was invited to be part of like math Olympics or whatever it was. But this was my chance to, to make a decision where it's not just about moving to the next level of math. So what I did in my vast wisdom was chose the lowest math class on the sheet she handed me. And in ninth grade, I'm doing like long addition and subtraction. And, and it was amazing, except that I took the easy route only for the moment. The bummer was uh, it was an immature, immature decision that in college would bite me because then I got to take like 37 math classes to get to college level in order to take a class that was college level and I can get a degree. And so um, that was not the best decision I, I should have made. I wish I could say that decisions like that ended at junior high. And the simple truth is, I think for all of us in the room, there's a poser inside of every single one of us that wants to take the easy route. It's not a kid thing or a young person thing or a people in their 20s thing. It never ends. And as we begin a series called Spiritual Mathematics, um, what we want to do is work through equations that help us understand what it looks like to overcome certain patterns, certain, certain thoughts, certain stereotypes, that keep us from, from getting off the merry-go-round of compromise. And we're going to begin with, with something Paul wrote to a church he cared deeply about. It's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. <clears throat> and I love how Paul, oftentimes when you read the different things he wrote, we have things like Corinthians and Ephesians and Galatians and Philippians and Colossians. He wrote all, all these different letters to these churches, but over and over he talks of things like agriculture, he talks of things like armies, and he talks of sports. And so maybe for certain people in here, you really would have liked Paul. But when you look at what he has to say, it's something that I think means a lot to every one of us as we walk through it. First Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. I'm going to read them, then I'm going to pray and we'll walk through it. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to be a note taker. There's some sheets right there in the seat in front of you you can take notes off of. If you're in a life group, these are, these are going to help you with some conversation coming up this week in the life group that you're in. And if you're not in a life group, I want to encourage you to consider getting into one as you head out to the lobby today. In fact, there's some, some information to the left on your way out. Um, life group, when they meet, where they are, who's the leader, stuff like that that you can get more info. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified for the prize." 
Father, today as we stop and pray, help us understand the equation here. Help us understand why Paul is using this picture, but also not just why, but what it means to us as we live out our faith. We talk about what Jesus has done. We value the sacrifice on the cross that we can be forgiven for our mistakes, for our sins, for the things we've done wrong. But I pray, God, it's more than just forgiveness, God. It's life in you. Help us live it out the way you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. Corinth is a city that, that, that back in the day hosted every other year the Isthmian Games. Every two years, they would have competitions like track and field, all kinds of events, including running. And so when he uses this analogy, he's helping them understand spiritual terms from something they're very familiar with. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? He's not bringing up a sentence they wouldn't have known. It's kind of a rhetorical question. Of course we know. We gather. We watch the games. We have friends that have competed. I have a relative that competed, whatever. I'm familiar with how running works, Paul. What, you know, They all compete, but only one gets the prize. So he's bringing up a conversation <clears throat> that they are very familiar with. And he says this, run in such a way as to get the prize. So he's taking it from a simple analogy to something that, that the individual needs to understand, something that you and I need to understand. And then he says in verse 25a, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. So I think every one of us is familiar with athletes, and maybe you've been an athlete, maybe you've won awards, maybe you're still a great athlete. That's awesome, but it is amazing what athletes will do to get to the top of their game, the energy that they'll spend, the time that they'll spend. They'll push harder than anyone else to win. Think of stories that you've heard of. Think of you know stories that are out there. We're familiar with the Seahawks, with Russell Wilson, the discipline that he has to become better and better through watching film for, for how he sleeps, how he eats, his regimen. He's got people that he hires to help him remain healthy on every level. Even a couple of years ago, when, when Russell Wilson was injured, he was getting up every hour on the hour to work on rehabbing so he could continue to play even through injury a couple of years ago. It's amazing how hard an athlete will push to become the best at their sport. They sacrifice comfort. They endure early mornings. They endure late nights. They fixate on film and science and study of their sport. I think we're also aware that competition is not just physical, but also mental. Part of the game is absolutely you need to be able to physically do what you need to do to compete, but, but the other part that's very much important is the mental side, the emotional side, even the spiritual component of competing. Because the simple fact is, if all you think is, I'm never going to catch the ball, I'm never going to win, we're never going to get ahead, this is never going to happen, there's a good chance your team is not going to win games. Because part of the idea of winning is that it's also a mental and emotional and spiritual experience. I love Paul. He says they comp uh, everyone who competes goes into strict training. And the simple fact is, it says they do it to get a crown that will not last. An athlete competes for a crown. Sometimes it's a ribbon, a trophy. Sometimes it's bragging rights. 
Anybody ever, ever see runners? We got somebody who literally right now is competing in a marathon, 26.2 miles. Anybody ever run a marathon in here? Yeah, few individuals have run marathon. Anybody half marathon? Anybody 5K? Anybody run from the car into the building when it's raining? Okay, yeah, some of us, right? I run when somebody's chasing me with a knife, so there's that, which very rare for me, very rare. But I love how you, you think about like people that run and then you see certain bumper stickers and you know when you see the oval on the back of a car that says 26.2, what does it mean? It means they've run a marathon. What I love is it doesn't mean they won it. It's like, well, what place did you take? Well, I don't know, like 400th. Well, wait a minute. So what you're saying is you lost a marathon. No, I'm just kidding. It's just joking. But, but I love, okay, here, here's an example of the back of a car that, that they're clearly into running, okay? I also know that you can order every one of these on Amazon. You don't have to run a mile. You don't have to go anywhere. So, but look, it said Marathon Freak 13.1. In my dreams, I'm a Kenyan, okay, if you know what that means, by the way. Two days ago, a Kenyan just got the under two-hour mark for a marathon. That's an average pace of 13.2 miles an hour. That's craziness, okay? Another one on here, my sport is your sport's punishment. Um, you know, there's all kinds of, I, I break for runners, all kinds of, and I love how, again, when you're, when you're a runner and you throw those, you know, I've done 13 point, I've done 26, whatever, people love it. I saw some, as I was kind of putting this, this together, this message, um, uh, 26.2 is a marathon. One of the bumper stickers said 27.4, I got lost. I thought that was pretty good. <clears throat> Another one said 0.0, I don't run. Anybody with me on that one? So there's, there's that. Um, and then this one I love, 13.1, I'm only half crazy. So there you go. And then there's those super endurance runners. They go like 200 miles. And, and by the way, they don't even stop to go to the bathroom, which you can figure out what that means. But anyway, um, Paul is saying, let me bring it back to scripture. Terrible transition. Um, Paul is saying that, that that for all the accolades and all of the awards and becoming great at something, not that you can't compete, not that it isn't a good thing to compete, that's great, but what he's saying is it won't endure. He's saying well, whatever it is that you're really, really good at, if it's a sport, it doesn't necessarily endure. What, the question becomes, what does it have to do with things that are eternal? Discipline is great. Becoming great at a sport, Awesome getting money, accolades, whatever, fine. But listen to what he says. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But listen to this. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. What is he talking about? Because this is where he's bringing you and I right into the conversation. They do it to get a crown that won't last. We do it. What is it? What is it that he's talking about? He's saying for any of us in here that would say, I'm a follower of Christ, it, we do what? We, we do train. We sacrifice. We endure. That This requires discipline. This whole idea of you and I being effective for kingdom advancement requires these things. Paul is saying, you and I, if you're a follower of Christ, are not excluded from the need to live sacrificially, for the need for you and I to live with discipline, for you and I to, to train and endure. Why? Part of it is because you and I are in a fight. 
There is a battle being waged every single day that if you and I open our hearts and eyes, we can very much see the temptations that we face to make a decision that we know won't lead to anything good. Is anybody else with me in this? That, that there's things every day that come our way that, yeah, I would love to eat a whole cake, but I don't. <laughs> I would love to have a whole pizza. There are moments where you feel tempted to make a decision that you know won't lead to good things. And it's something that we're familiar with. So we're reminded that we are in a fight. And it's a spiritual battle that we've got to discern. Paul writes to the church at Corinth these words we're reading. But Paul also wrote to the church in Ephesus. Once again, another church filled with idolatry and, and, and wickedness and worship of, of, of other gods. And so when Paul is writing to that church in, in Ephesians 6, if you're taking notes, write it down. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Paul says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and principalities and powers of darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after having done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist. It's why I say all the time and I'm never gonna quit saying it, be a regular reader of scripture. You've got to continue to gird yourself, is another word. Put on truth as a regular habit. I would even say a daily habit. The belt of truth buckled around your waist. The breastplate of righteousness. You go, what does that mean? It means living in holiness, making Christ-honoring decisions that protect you. The breastplate of righteousness. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. What is that talking about? It means you're equipping yourself every single day to do what God wants, to go where God wants, to become what God wants. I'm ready. My feet are ready to go wherever he wants me to go. In addition to all this, take the helmet of salvation. What is that? The security that I am in Christ, and though people may try to come against me and though things may try to happen, I've got this security of the helmet of salvation to protect me, that I don't have to worry constantly, where is Jesus? Where is the Lord? Why is he so far from me? He's not, and you keep your head on straight with the protection, the confidence of knowing who you are in Christ. Take the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. What does that mean? We're going to talk about it in a spiritual equation or spiritual mathematics here in the next couple of weeks. One of the equations has everything to do with faith. But, but Paul is saying we take up a shield of faith. Why? Because there's an enemy fighting, shooting arrows at us. You're a loser. You're a failure. You're nothing. You can never overcome. You'll never become anything. 
God doesn't care. Your, your path is blocked and it's because you're rejected. All of these lies that we take a faith in. No, no, no. I am a child of God. I am Christ's friend. I am sealed by the Lord. All of these truths that help us understand, it all plays together. Are you ready for it? Then he says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all kinds of occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. He says, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. What good is armor if you're not alert? What good is putting on all these things if we're not aware which direction the enemy may be coming at? So Paul says in the midst of preparing yourself spiritually for this battle that we're in, you've got to practice being alert. Where is the enemy trying to get me? With where I'm headed today, what are some of the pitfalls that I'm going to go through? What are some of the things I need to endure? Be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. We are in a fight. Another spot in the second letter to the Corinthians we have in the Bible is, is chapter 10, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. It simply says, For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought under the obedience of Christ. <clears throat> Paul is talking over and over that you guys, we're in a fight. If we're not training, if we're not understanding the need for discipline, if we're not getting that, 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 that something needs to be different about how you and I live, then we're missing what it means to live by faith every day. And that's where, in spiritual mathematics, I want us to feel the challenge all the time. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Paul is saying it has everything to do with eternal impact. Paul is saying, number one, eternal salvation, that I am in Christ, and I'm confidently becoming who God wants me to become. And two, I want to advance God's kingdom on earth. What does that mean? that I want to live for Jesus every day that I'm here so that, yes, I can walk in that confidence, that righteousness, great, but also so that this world can see Jesus through me every day. That where you go to work, that where you go to class, go to school, that where you navigate this, this world every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that people can see Christ through how we live and we're very much about wanting people to know that Jesus cares about them. Paul says in verse 26, Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. That goes back to the 27.4 comment. I got lost, you know. I, I don't run aimlessly. I don't fight. The message version says, I don't know about you, but I'm running hard for the finish line. I'm giving it everything I've got. No sloppy living for me. How about us? Are we haphazard about our faith? That it matters a lot, maybe on a day like today where you can come in and feel good about an experience? But then kind of as the week goes on, just things kind of fade off into the distance and, and we just kind of go through the motions of living and existing. 
not really focusing on looking through the, the, the lens of our faith at the world we, we navigate every day? Are we kind of into our faith? Because Paul's about to say something that ought to, to create tension, I think, inside of all of us. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. <clears throat> I do not fight like one beating the air. No, listen to this, no. I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified from the prize. To me, through the lens of a pastor, that, that's like lots of tension. You know why? Because I can get up here every week and say all kinds of inspiring things. I can read all kinds of quotes from, from great authors and all kinds of people in our, histor- in our history. But what about me living it out? A- am I beating my body? Am I bringing myself under some? Am I surrendering to what God wants and not giving in to what I feel? Is that me? And is that you? How many of us in this room have ever said to our, our, our kids, hey, kids, don't swear, but, but you're swearing. How, how many individuals have said, kids, you should never smoke? It's not good for you. Like, you're really good at that anyway. <clears throat> how many of us have ever tried to tell somebody to do something that we're not living out? See, here's the catch, and I didn't invent this phrase, but I've always remembered it. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. You can look at that through the lens of a parent, a teacher. You can look at that through the lens of a boss, somebody who has employees that work for you. You can look at all kinds of, you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. It's a side note, and I'm going to add it to this message just for a second, but I, I love how <clears throat> years ago I heard Andy Stanley say this in, in regard to parenting. You don't parent for obedience. You parent for a relationship. If you parent only for obedience, then you get militant kids that will fly off the handle someday. Trust me. I, I've seen it as a pastor. I've seen it in, in families where it's like all you do is berate and, and yell at them, tell them what they're doing wrong. Parent for relationship. It doesn't mean you're buddies. You're the parent, not the buddy. It doesn't mean there isn't discipline involved and, and, and you know, certain parameters you've got to create, but sometimes parents miss it because all you see is, is berating and speeches and you know, coaching on to do this, do that. Why'd you do that? That's wrong. That's not right. But you don't get kids that, that, that learn how to grow up in relationship and be healthy. You get kids that are so stifled in their ability to be themselves that eventually it blows up. Some of you are very familiar with that. Freebie. <clears throat> when you and I commit to Christ, it requires a discipline. See, <clears throat> Paul also says to, to the churches in the region of Galatia, okay, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives inside of me. I live, uh, the life I live, I now live in the body, and I live by faith <clears throat> in the Son of God, <clears throat> excuse me, who loved me and gave himself for me. In Luke 9, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, 
but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, but forfeit their soul, their very self? Part of the fruit of the Spirit we've mentioned many times in here. In Galatians 5.22, part of the fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering, and we don't like that word. But that's part of this idea of living by the Spirit. All of these things are the language of someone who doesn't live by how they feel, but by their conviction to be the best they can be. The spiritual mathematics equation for today is simply this. Convictions are greater than emotions. Convictions are greater than emotions. We must develop convictions. I've been reading this book, Battlefield of the Mind by Joyce Meyer recently, just trying to, and I posted it a couple of weeks ago on a weekly checkup. I threw it on Facebook. It's about a minute long, but I was thinking and processing life, and I literally put it this way. You and I have got to get better at thinking about what we think about. And Joyce Meyer in her, in her book, Battlefield of the Mind, says this, where the mind goes, the person follows. Where the mind goes, the per- that's why we talk about dwelling on the right things. That's why in Philippians 4, 8, it talks about whatsoever things are pure, noble, lovely, excellent, praiseworthy. Think about such things. Convictions. I'm reading from a theologian here. Conviction refers to the state of being convinced and confident that something is true. It means a persuasion, a strong persuasion or belief. In other words, conviction stands opposed to doubt and skepticism. When we think of a man of conviction, we also think in in terms of action and direction. We think of a person whose convictions have a definite impact on how they live, on what they do, on what they say, on where they go. By a person of biblical convictions, we mean one whose convictions are derived from Scripture and whose convictions affect him scripturally. Biblical conviction is really the product of three things that characterize the ideal person of maturity. A commitment to Scripture as authority, the construction of specific beliefs and convictions based on that authority, and finally, the courage to act on those convictions by faith. I just said a whole lot to simply say this. For you and I to develop convictions, it requires us to consider, number one, what we believe, and number two, what we do with what we believe. Here's a few examples, and I'm winding down here. If I believe that my body is a temple of God's spirit, then the action or what I do with it is this. I treat it well so it can remain as functional as possible for as long as possible. It changes how I treat my body when it comes to alcohol consumption or drug use and abuse, when it comes to the food that I eat or even sexual purity. Baz Luhrmann, back in the late 90s, wrote a a song called Sunscreen, and and he talks about it's basically a, a commencement type of speech, but he makes these comments. Get plenty of calcium. Be kind to your knees. You'll miss them when they're gone. Enjoy your body. Use it every way you can. Don't be afraid of it or what other people think of it. It is the greatest instrument you'll ever own. 
And while we've got to be careful with a couple of those phrases through the lens of our faith, it really is true. This is the greatest instrument you'll ever own. If I believe that prayer, scripture reading, and worship are key tools to strengthen my awareness of God's path for my life, then the action is I make, my, make room in my day for spiritual exercise. If I believe that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the way to an eternity with our Heavenly Father, then yes, I invite Jesus to be the Lord of my life and forgive me of my sin and also help others see it in how I live, in what I say, and in my conversations with them. If I believe community is essential to my faith journey, then I get into community. If I believe that God's work is provided for God's people, provided for by God's people, then I live happily, generously, making a difference with my resources. Some of you have heard the name Eric Little, or you could say Liddell, however you want to pronounce it, but he was born in January 1902, and uh, his parents were missionaries to China, um, and when he was five years old, he ended up moving from China to London to be in a, a school um, and his parents stayed as missionaries in China. Um, at five years old, he's in London, and, and, and as he continues in the school, they find that he's really good at sports, in particular running. And, and he wins all kinds of awards, and by 1924, when the Olympics come around, he's really the, the front man to compete in the 100 meter and win the gold. He's expected to. But he finds out that, that the preliminary races to qualify are on a Sunday, and he has such a conviction as a follower of Christ for him of the Sabbath on a Sunday that he refuses to compete on a Sunday, which means he can't compete in that race. Think about that. The best in the world. The one that, that, that's hands down favorite to win the gold. And he won't compete because of that deep conviction. So he finds out as he's looking at the races that there's a 400 meter race that the, the, the preliminaries aren't on Sunday and the race itself isn't on a Sunday. So he trains for a couple of months for the 400 meter. And when he gets to the day of the 400 meter, um, he's going to compete. And he was considered to be a strong favorite. And I'm going to read this. Before the final, the U.S. Olympic masseur uh, slipped a piece of paper into his hand and it included the words from 1 Samuel 2 verse 30, those who honor me, I will honor Sprinting from the start, Eric Little created a significant gap to the other runners and held on to win gold and set a new Olympic record time of 47.6 seconds. He described his race plan like this. The secret of my success over the 400 meter is that I run the first 200 as fast as I can. And then for the second 200, with God's help, I run faster. <laughs> the next year... In 1925, he returned to northern China to serve as a missionary like his parents. In China, he remained fit and only competed sporadically. He married a Canadian missionary. He had three daughters. In 1941, the advancing Japanese army, remember this is during World War II, pressed him and his family to flee to a rural mission station. Liddell was kept very busy <clears throat> dealing with the stream of locals who came to the station for medical treatment and food. In 1943, the Japanese reached the mission, and Liddell was put in an internment camp. Aggravated by the shortage of food and medical treatment, he developed a brain tumor and suffered ill health. Many camp internees attest to the strong moral character 
that he had. He was seen as a great unifying force, and he helped to ease tension through his selflessness and impartiality. Norman Cliff, in his book, The Courtyard of the Happy Way, wrote of him, the finest Christian, Christian gentleman it has been my pleasure to meet. In all the time in the camp, I never heard him say a bad word about anybody. A fellow internee, Stephen Metcalf, later wrote of him, he gave me two things. One was his worn-out running shoes, but the best thing he gave me was his baton of forgiveness. He taught me to love my enemies, the Japanese, and to pray for them. Eric Little died on 21st of February, 1945, five months before the camp was liberated. He died from his inoperable brain tumor, although overwork and malnutrition undoubtedly hastened his death. It was revealed that after the war, he had turned down an opportunity to leave the camp as part of a prisoner exchange program, instead giving it to a pregnant woman. His His death left a profound vacuum within the camp. Such was the great strength of his personality and his character. I can't imagine how he felt during all of those years stuck in an internment camp, facing all the malnutrition, facing a brain tumor and ill health. I can't think of it. But to me, this is the perfect story of somebody who chose conviction over emotion. To me, it makes me think of the greatest eulogy you could ever write about somebody the greatest story you could ever hear about somebody's life. And I think about for you and me at the end of our time on this planet, what is it that you want people to say? What is it that you want people to remember you by? That you are a person of compromise, that you lived by how you feel, that you had so much potential that you never achieved or that you lived by conviction and it made a difference in the lives of people around you. In 2002, In Scotland, a poll voted Eric Little as the most popular Scottish sports figure of all time. What does it look like for you to live as somebody that is driven by conviction over emotion? And it's not that emotions are bad, they're a gift. But my word, some of our greatest gifts can be our greatest curses. If we don't learn how to put things in the right order. God, today, I pray for for every one of us to realize that this journey, it's a challenging one. And to say, hey, I'm a follower of Christ, it literally means I want to do what Jesus did. I want to be like Jesus was. I want to have that kind of love, that kind of uh, sacrifice. I want to live with that kind of discernment and relationship to my heavenly father. And and, and as much as I believe that, yes, it's a tall order, I also believe, God, that you sent your Holy Spirit to fill us, to empower us, to give us discernment about decisions that we know at certain moments that compromises knocking on our door. We know when emotion is about to get the best of us and we're about to walk in a direction that isn't okay. And for some of us, we're still trying to figure some of that out. But I pray that we would begin to process in our faith a bit differently than maybe we have. That instead of living by how we feel, instead we would process, what do I believe? And how does that make me behave? What do I believe? And what does that do with how I behave? Father, help us walk this out every single day. In Jesus' name. 
Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Marysville Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.